Anybody ready for the word of God this morning? Amen and amen. There's a few things uh, right out the gate here. Um, we have been studying the book of Romans, um, and today uh, we cross over into Romans chapter 3. So you ought to give yourself a hand clap for making it all the way to chapter 3. But we got to get all the way to chapter 16, so stay in there, stick in there. Uh, our text today, uh, most theologians would argue uh, that it is one of the most difficult texts in the book of Romans, um, and so it's, it's a little tricky one, but we'll, we'll get through it together. All righty, y'all ready? So strap in your seatbelt, kick off your shoes, I got y'all for the next three hours. <laughs> Just messing around. It's Mother's Day, and we all know that all mothers have a special power given to them by God. It's called intuition. It is the ability to just know something or have an inkling. For some reason, I just like that word inkling for some reason. Moms, mom, how do you know I was going to do this or that? Boy, my intuition. Besides, I carried you for nine months and was in labor 26,000 hours with you. <laughs> a mom's intuition gives them the ability to anticipate something before it even happens. How they do it, I don't know. In our text today, you can mistake mistaken the Apostle Paul for having an intuition. And the ladies say, we can't have nothing. In our text this morning, it is as if the Apostle Paul sees and anticipates the argument of his opponents by stating their logical argument to what he previously said, and then he answers it. Picture these next eight verses like the husband who is prepping to win an argument with his wife, and he's in the mirror at home. When she says this, I'm going to say that. And if she come at me like this, I'm going to come at her like this. And that ought to, you know, that, that, that ought to put her in her place. And I'm telling you, ladies, when you're not in the house, we are killing it in the mirror. Like, man, I got this. I'm, I'm ready. I'm ready. She comes in the back door. How you doing? What, uh, what was that you were saying? Uh, nothing. I don't know, but somehow it works better in our imagination than in reality. Ladies, in your absence, we be talking all this stuff, but when y'all show up, we shut up. That's right. But ladies, be relieved that the Apostle Paul isn't using intuition, but an old ancient form of argument called diatribe. Now, diatribe was a writing or speaking where you anticipated the argument of the other. You state what they are going to say before they say it, and then you refute it with your own argument. This was, an, this was effective because it answers the objection before your opponent could make it. This, is not, this should not be used for marriage, okay? It showed you understood both sides of the argument. Paul uses diatribe extensively throughout Romans. 
He presupposes the opposing contention and then answers it. We are in Romans chapter 3. If you got your Bibles, go there. And uh, we will be starting at verse 1 and ending at verse 8 today. Uh, But last week, we finished up Romans chapter 2, where Paul came hard at Jewish people. He came hard at their self-righteousness. He came hard at religious folks. He came hard at church folks. So maybe you're saying, I'm not Jewish, but in a sense, Paul is coming at religious people, your typical church goer. What he said to them is worse than somebody talking about your mama. Now, you know, when somebody talks about mom, it's going to be a conversation. I, I, may, I, I try to do these. I try to stick to these hands, right? Because I'm saying, I don't like these hands, so I try to go with these hands right here. I try to pray, right? Somebody say something about your mama, it's a whole different ball game. Paul speaks to the Jewish Christians in the church at Rome and says, before you think judgment is only for the Gentiles, You need to realize, Jews, you are under God's condemnation as well. Paul chops down their self-righteousness by blowing up the very foundation they think they are standing on. The Jewish people thought because they were Jewish, received revelation from God, about God, and were circumcised, that they could escape God's judgment. Paul is like, That right there, that's dead. None of that can save you from God. I'm not sure if we feel the weight of the offense Paul said to the Jewish people, but it is not easy what he is saying to them. If you think about the greatest thing that offends you, you think about that one thing that gets under your skin, you think about that one thing that ticks you off, and you times that towards 100, and you're starting to get the picture of the offense that Paul is launching at the Jewish people. This is not small what he's saying to them. Paul knows he just started a fight and an argument with the Jewish people. This brings us to Romans chapter 3. Paul now anticipates their objection by using diatribe tactics. Paul must defend himself from three accusations. Paul, you are attacking God's people. That's number one. Paul, you are denying God's promises. And that's number two. And I've been wanting to say this phrase for the longest, so I'm going to go ahead and say it. Paul, you have the unmitigated gall. i just been wanting to say that for the longest. I said, I put it right here. Let me say it one more time. You have the unmitigated gall to attack God's purity. And that's number three. So let's go. Drop your eyes down to verse one. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if someone were unfaithful? What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our righteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous? 
to inflict wrath on us. I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my life God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people standardly charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. Paul, what are you talking about? How did Paul know the objection of the Jewish people in Rome and what they were going to say about the gospel that he's preaching? Now let's back up in our thinking for a moment. Remember that Romans presents the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. That's what it presents. The first part is good news. It's what the good news is about. It's what the good news is. But you cannot have good news if you don't have bad news. Bad news first, then good news. And the bad news is that mankind are all sinners and we are under the condemnation of God. For what? For our sins. Do not take sin lightly, church. God is not okay with sin. The only way to be saved is not by human effort, but by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ, who died on our behalf, who rose from the dead, and is coming back again. I get excited every time I preach the gospel because it is good news for a jacked-up bad God. Paul is defending his gospel as the only means to salvation. Now, this is huge, right? Because we live in a pluralistic uh, 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 society, right? Everybody's good. Everybody's okay. You can go through Jesus. You can go through Buddha. You can go through, you can go whatever door you want to go to as long as you get to God. But Jesus says in the gospel that nobody comes through the Father except through me. Romans is a comprehensive work of the gospel. So Paul sees their argument coming, but Paul is not new to this. He is certainly true to this. There is a guy by the name of Ravi Zacharias. You want to remember that name, Ravi Zacharias. And he is a Christian apologist, which basically means a person who offers an argument in defense of something controversial. In his case, Ravi argues for Christianity. It's pretty much his career. This is what this, this dude goes around to top universities. He shows up. He allows them to ask him any question they want. They can throw any argument at him, and then he gives an opposing argument. And you can imagine, after doing that for so long, you begin to know the arguments that people are going to throw at you. You just, you just know what's coming. You can see it coming a mile away. Well, so has Paul. His pattern of ministry was to go into a city and head right for the synagogue. Paul is like one of these bold guys. Like he, 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 he will go to the synagogue just looking for an argument. He's like, come on, let's do this. He would teach and inevitably debate the Jews who took strong issues with what he was saying. Paul doesn't use intuition here but experience and divine wisdom from the Holy Spirit. How many people know that God will give you wisdom to witness on his behalf? Paul, in these next eight verses, 
will answer eight questions he has indeed heard and answered several times. Question number one and two. Paul starts out, what good is it to be a Jew? What good is it to be a Jew? Verse one. Then what advantage has the Jews? Or what is the value of circumcision? Now, I ask this question first, Paul, because there they are going to excuse, accuse him of attacking God's people. Paul has to deal with this because, you know, the Jewish people are going to attack him for attacking God's people. Well, remember, Paul has just completely stripped them of their self-righteousness rooted in their Jewishness, leaving them completely naked before the throne of God. Paul might as well have said something really bad about them. Paul, in other words, was telling them that they were not children of God. Paul essentially is conveying to these Jewish people that they are not children of God. And maybe you recall when Jesus did this in the book of John. Jesus left heaven, came down to earth, walked with us, and as he's walking with the Jewish people, Jesus says something offensive to them, and he says this. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works of Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Jesus tells them that they are not children of God, and what is their response? No, not, we're, we're not going to fight you. We're going to kill you. We're going to take you out. You mean to tell me who I read the Bible, I pray, I go to church every day, I'm a child of God, and you're telling me that I don't belong to God? Oh, we got a problem. We got a big problem, Jesus. In fact, we're going to crucify you a little bit later because of it. I'm going to tell you, if you're you're shedding light and people are living in darkness, they're going to back away. They're going to back away because people do not like light when they're living in darkness. Not at all. In fact, not only that, they may kill you. Now, you may not feel that in America, but across seas, they feel it every day. People slain in the sand for standing up for Jesus Christ. In the Jewish person's mind, it's like you mean to tell me being Jewish means nothing, Paul? Being Jewish in our minds equals the child of God, right? Paul, if this is true, if being the seed of Abraham and possessing the law of God and having the signs of the covenant circumcision, if that does not save me, then what advantage is it to be Jewish? Why would God call and deliver us from Egypt? Why would God spread the Red Sea? Why would God rain down bread from heaven? Why would God send us the prophets? Why would God send us King David? Why would God deliver the three boys out of the fire? Paul, why would he do that if being Jewish means nothing, Paul? Why would God call us? What is the point of all the Old Testament history? So listen, church. If you're going to reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ, If you're going to present the gospel, you must understand what people are standing on outside of the gospel. Let me say that again. If you are going to present the gospel, you must understand what people are standing on in regards to their justification, in regards to them being right with God. You must understand that. 
Because if you do not understand that, you cannot effectively teach them the gospel. Because in order to believe in the gospel, I must remove my faith from one thing and put my faith in another thing. Does that make sense? In order to believe in the gospel, in order to come to Jesus, I got to stop believing in what I'm trusting in, and I got to turn to the only Savior. And I got to be able to, as a preacher, be able to articulate, be able to break down where you're at and try to help you get over here to Jesus Christ. Now, this is what you got to understand, church. That is risky business because people will kill you over what they believe. They will kill you. People will kill you over touching their functional idols. They will kill you over it. You can say all you want. Paul, in the book of Acts, would preach the gospel, but when he talked about ethnicity, they were ready to kill him. Why? Because he touched their idols. And if you're going to effectively preach the gospel, you got to know what your opponents are standing on. Now, now watch and be careful because church folks, we talk too much sometimes. It's good to just shut up and just listen to people. You come in, bringing your Jesus in, you don't even know where they are. You don't even know their story. He's coming in, just talking. Just be quiet. This is, it's in the Bible, okay? James 1.19, right? Be slow to what? Slow to speak. Translate it, shut up. That's what it is. They just translate. Let's just be real. Let's just be honest. Somebody said God gave you two ears and what? One mouth. I'm still struggling. Y'all not alone. I'll be doing the same thing. Like, man, I just need to be quiet. Okay, now watch this. Paul is arguing being Jewish does not make you a child of God. That's what he's arguing. Being Jewish does not make you the child of God. If that's true, Paul, you are saying being Jewish is pointless. But Paul doesn't say that. He doesn't say being Jewish means nothing. Watch what he says. Much in every way. <laughs> to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Oracle is a broad word for God's spoken in written word to Israel, the Old Testament. When he says oracle, that's what he's talking about. This includes the entire Old Testament. The, the first five books of the Bible, the law, and then the prophets, and all that good stuff. And we're going to talk about that in our summer, summer Bible study, if, uh, just a little plugger there. Remember, the Jews thought that they were good with God because what? Because they had heard the Old Testament. The Jews thought they were good with God because they had the Old Testament. God had called them out. So they, yeah, we good. Me and God, we cool, right? In chapter 2, Paul says, no, you can't just hear it to be justified. You just can't hear the, the law and be justified. But you got to do the law in order to be justified, right? You think about the Ten Commandments. How you doing in that today, church? I don't know about you, I ain't doing too well. I'm not doing too well, not with the Ten Commandments. While having the Old Testament doesn't make you right with God, it is still an incredible privilege and advantage. Now, this is what Paul is going to argue. It is an advantage of being Jew because you have the oracles of God. How does that give you an advantage? Is it better to be lost with a GPS or without a GPS? 
pretty simple, isn't it? At least with a GPS, it can guide you to your destination. It can't take you there, but it can guide you. Of course, it is up to you to obey its instructions. With some of us fellas, we so hard-headed, we don't listen to the GPS. End up in the cornfield with some cows somewhere. I ain't listening to that thing. Girl, I know where I'm going, woman. And what happened? She over there looking at you. Siri, get us home. Paul is like, being Jewish has an advantage because God gave you a GPS to find salvation. The Jews had the promises of God. They had the covenant promises God made to Abraham. And, and, and through him, all the nations would be blessed through David. That's his descendant would sit on an eternal throne. If God had not spoken to Abraham or Moses through the burning bush of Israel, through the Torah, where will Israel be? Where would the world be? I don't know about you, but I would love for God to speak to me through a burning bush. I would love for God to raise down food from heaven because to be quite honest, food is quite expensive. If he would just rain down a McDougie with cheese, I'm just saying, I'm just saying, if he would just rain down a meal for a brother, I wouldn't mind that. I mean, think about it. The Jewish people got God in the flesh. The creator of heaven and earth walk with them. How legit is that? You watched them open up blind eyes. You seen them raise Lazarus from the dead. Man, that had to be like mind-blowing, right? Here's the crazy part. He raises Lazarus out of the grave. Everybody know he's been there for four days, and they go trick on him. Now, I don't know about you, but if a brother raised somebody from the dead, I'm rolling with that brother right there. I ain't got time to be thinking about y'all. I'm going with him. <laughs> but here's the reality. We can look down on the Jewish people. But as the church, we have received the GPS as well. And some of you are holding it in your hand. And some of you, when you come to church and you hear Bible teaching, God is giving you a GPS to find your way to salvation. But the issue is, is that our GPS is turned off half the time. We don't listen to it half the time. We do what we want to do. And guess what? God is saying you have the advantage. There's people who do not have the word of God in their hand. If I had time, I'll tell you the history of how you got that book in your hand, translated into English. It was a lot of blood shedding to get that book to you. You have an advantage, Christian. Open your GPS and listen to it and follow it, and it will bring you to Jesus Christ. Question number two and three. Is Israel unfaithful? Is Israel unfaithfulness an indication of God's unfaithfulness? Verses three and four. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Why is Paul bringing up the faithfulness of God? Because Paul knows that the Jewish people are going to accuse him of calling God unfaithful. 
Now watch this argument. You're saying that Jewish means nothing. God made promises to the Jewish people. If God doesn't complete his promises to the Jewish people on the basis that they are Jewish, then God is unfaithful and he's not fulfilling his promises. But Paul got something for them. Paul knows that the Jewish people are going to accuse him of calling God unfaithful. Watch how they try to trap him. If you read your Bible, you would see that God made many, many, many promises to the Jewish people. He gave them, he gave the promise in, to Abraham that you will be multiplied as the sands of the sea and they would be blessed and so forth. He gave them promises through David that they would inherit a kingdom and a king and all of these wonderful promises through Isaiah that they, that they would come to a time of refreshing. Paul, are you saying? Because the Jewish people fail to believe God, trust in God, have faith in God, that God has counseled his promises, Paul then, in essence, you are calling God unfaithful. Now, what they're saying is this. Is God not going to grant salvation to his people based on their heritage and their ceremonies and so forth? If not, then God is a liar and unfaithful because he is supposed to grant us what he promised us, not on the basis of our faithfulness, but on the basis of our Jewishness. God never told them that. God never told them that. They thought they could live like the world and claim the blessings of God's children. You better be careful, church, twisting God's word to suit you. We see this all the time. Pastors telling people if they believe in God's will, he'll make them rich. They'll never be sick. They'll never experience any suffering. Give your time, not your life, and you're all good. That's not in God's word at all. Now, we might not say, I'm going to receive the promises of God on the basis of being Jewish, but on the basis of going to church, on the basis of reading my Bible, on the basis of praying on the basis of being baptized, on the basis of asking the man upstairs to forgive my sins every once in a while. God has to forgive me, right? Because he promised. Then what happens when we don't receive the blessing we are supposedly promised? We call God a liar, and some people walk away from Christianity altogether. Why? Because they created and formed a Jesus in their head that is not in the Bible. You got to be careful because our desires and our wants, when we come to the Word of God, it will twist the Scriptures. And you will see what you want to see. When you come to the Bible, you better come low and you better come humble. And if there's a disagreement between your mind and the Bible, the Bible better win. Because your mind is broken. The word of God is not broken. It's not broken. But listen, it is, it, this is a very weighty matter. To call God a liar or unfaithful is not a small indictment. Here's an illustration for you. Church, we can be like my eight-year-old son. Daddy, you promised you would take me to Toys R Us. I call this me and Dakai Toys R Us covenant. And he's been pulling this thing since I've been a pastor. Watch this. Daddy, you are a pastor, right? 
Daddy, pastors don't lie, do they? <laughs> yes, son. At least we try not to. Watch this. He's trying to set me up, but I know my diatribe argument, so I'm ready for him. Dekai, I told you, if you clean your room, I would take you. Did you clean it? No. But you promised, Daddy. What he fails to see is he is unfaithful, not me. Now, of course, an earthly daddy can fail for sure in his promises. And the child could be right in calling his daddy unfaithful. But I have never known God to be unfaithful. I have never, 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 never known God to be unfaithful. From Genesis to Revelation, he has been faithful. Heaven and earth may fail you. Your mama may fail you. Your daddy may fail you. But God Almighty will not fail you. He cannot. God will never fail you. God is faithful. But they say, God, they say, Paul, are you calling God unfaithful? Thus Paul goes, watch this. The Bible is funny. They say, Paul, are you calling God unfaithful? And I just love this part right here. Paul goes to reply back to that question. He finds the strongest expression in Greek to say no, a.k.a. hecky no. Watch his answers in verses 4, better yet, verses, uh, yeah, verse 4. It says in the English, God forbid, but the Greek says genoti. I, I probably said that wrong, but that's cool. Which is the strongest negative the Greek language knows. Paul says are you accusing me of calling God unfaithful? Have you lost your mind? No way in the world can I picture God being unfaithful. Feel the weight of the apostle. It is as if he pauses in his letter and you can feel the passion here. Are you, say, are you saying that I'm saying that God is unfaithful? No way. I wouldn't even get close to saying it. I wouldn't even think it. I don't even let the thought come to my mind. That's how serious Paul is. And you ought to rejoice, church, that he feels that way about God's faithfulness. I said before, God so much cannot lie that if he called those chairs blue, they would turn blue. That's how true he is. They would turn blue. Whatever he says. You have the audacity to call God unfaithful, Paul. God can't break his word. He can't break his promises. God lying and being unfaithful is impossible. Man's failure is no indication of God's failure. Man's unfaithfulness is no indication of God's unfaithfulness. Because you're unfaithful, do not mistake it for God being unfaithful. Those oracles he mentioned include stipulations. He told them in the Old Testament under the covenant of the law, Israel, if you do good, I will do good. If you do bad, I will punish you. And we are all under the law apart from Jesus Christ. God always does what he says he will do, which is why Paul says this. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Mankind is sinful and unfaithful, and God is not. Now, Paul is quoting the OT. Now, I want you to see something here. 
Whenever you see, as it is written, he is referring to the Old Testament. So you should ask two questions every time you see, as it is written. Where and who is Paul quoting? That's what I'm looking at. Paul, who are you talking about and what are you quoting? Second, why is he quoting it here in Romans chapter 3 is the next question that I'm asking. Answer number one, Paul quotes Psalms 51 verse 4. Now recall that Psalm 51 is the psalm of King David's confession after his adultery with Bathsheba. That's what Paul is quoting. He's quoting King David after he committed adultery with Bathsheba. Here's what David said in the context of the Psalms. He says this to God. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Brokenness is good for us so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. What is David saying? I have sinned. Therefore, God is just to judge me. I have sinned, therefore God is just to judge me. David's sin makes God's judgment of David righteous. Another way to say it is, if you do the crime, you do the... Ah, you guys know that. Ah, hope y'all ain't got no warrants in here. No, I'm just fine. So question. Question number two. Why bring the Psalms up here? Paul is brilliant. He brings it up to make his point, to drive his point home. God is faithful and some Jews are not. Because although David is Jewish, he doesn't call God unfaithful if he judges him. In other words, David doesn't say, I am a Jew, God. You can't judge me. Yet, this is the argument of most Jewish people in the synagogue. God can't judge us because we are Jewish. And if he does, he is unfaithful to his promises. Wrong. God must judge you because you are a sinner. Which is why Paul said, if every man is false, that is all of us, Jew or not, God would be just to condemn all of us. Dexter Harris deserves nothing but hell at the end of the day. Nothing but hell. Which is why Paul said, if every man be false, God is still just. We think God owes us something because we exist or because we are human or because we go to church. God owes us the world. We make this mistake all the time. We think God owes us a happy life, a problem-free life, a harmonious family, an economically good life. Essentially, we want a God who always acts according to our glory and whatever we would be glorious for us. And if you're looking for a church that will put you in the center of their theology, you better find another church because God is the most important being in the universe, not you. Not you. You're not the most important. And I know you got your hair done, and I know you got your muscle shirt on, and you're not all that. You're not all that at all. Don't flex. So, so Paul answer so far is this, before we move into the last argument. Yes, Jews have an advantage, like having the very word of God entrusted to them. But if they are unbelieving, 
they will be judged. This does not call into question God's faithfulness or truth or righteousness. Rather, the sins of those God judged like David vindicates God in his judgment. When God judges you, it proves him to be righteous. And we all know when the judge doesn't give a righteous judgment, the whole country goes up in flames. The sin of Israel, watch this. The sin of Israel is the very thing that magnifies God's righteousness in his judgment. I want you to get this. God will be glorified one way or another. He will be glorified through you believing in his son, Jesus Christ, or he will be glorified through destroying you in hell. One way or another, he will be glorified. Okay, now watch this. Now watch how they twist this, all right? So they're seeing this. This is coming into their mind. Paul is conveying that your sin makes God glorious when he judges you. They see that, and they're going to try to twist this thing and make it work for them. Watch what they do. This is what sin does. When you lose grip of reality, sin starts twisting stuff to make it work the way that it wants to. Question three and four. Why not sin more if it glorifies God's mercy? Why not sin more if it glorifies God's mercy? Verse 5. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. Paul apologizes. This is how ridiculous their argument is. Paul apologizes for even talking this way. I speak in a human way because this argument that they're getting ready to give is illogical. Here, God is accused of using the Jewish people to his advantage to show his righteousness by their failures. Therefore, he is unrighteous and cannot rightly judge us because our sin makes him look good. I'm going to go back to me and Dekai towards our Russ covenant. Now watch this. Say if I said, Dekai, instead of taking you towards our Russ as I promised, if you cleaned your room, I'm going to give you a spanking for not cleaning your room as I told you. And you can forget about going to Toys R Us. I used to hate when my mom used to say, boy, you can forget about going anywhere. <laughs> That's my mom over there, too. <laughs> I'm bringing I, I, some, some spankings are coming back to me. I'm trying to. <laughs> right now, I'm doing self-therapy right now. You guys don't know, but I'm good. Okay. I'm going to give you a spanking for not cleaning your room, as I told you. And you can forget about going to Toys R Us. His response. Daddy, you promised Toys R Us not a spanking. <laughs> Daddy, you know pastors are not supposed to lie. It's the conviction. The unmitigated gall. No. <laughs> Dekai, my response. I'm being a good pastor by punishing you for your disobedience. In fact, your disobedience or sin helps your other siblings to see that I am a good pastor. 
that I don't tolerate or overlook disobedience when I carry out what you deserve. Hold on, Daddy. Or Pastor, I'm not sure what to call you right now. Daddy, I did you a favor by disobeying you. How, son? Well, you said my disobedience helps Kyla and Lila see you are just and good, a good pastor. Why would you spank me then? I mean, when you spank me, right? Let me say that line again because that's key. Well, you said my disobedience helped Kyla and Lila see you are just in a good pastor when you spank me, right? Mm-hmm. How then, here's his argument, how then can you not take me to Toys R Us when my disobedience make you look good? He's pulling one, isn't he? These kids are clever. Let's keep going. Let's see who's going to win in the end. (laughs) Take me to Toys R Us because my disobedience make you look good, Daddy. I still deserve your promises and faithfulness to Toys R Us covenant. You are using me, Daddy. That's not right, Daddy. You can't withhold my just reward because my disobedience benefits you. Now, if that sounds like a word game play, it is. And it is the way we start using language when we lose grip of reality. What Paul, Paul replies to this reasoning by this phrase, by no means. Look at verse 4, no way. This is not what I am saying. By no means, for then how could God judge the world? If God doesn't judge you for your wrong, how can he judge the world? Dakai, if I don't judge you, neither can I judge Kyla and Lila when they do wrong. Dakai, you know I will do right because you run to me to uphold justice when they do you wrong. And so you saying and telling me not to judge you for what you're doing is a contradiction by your own statement, Dakai. You know all the Jews believe that God could and would judge the world. So Paul shows how their reasoning would require them to deny a basic tenet of their belief system. And how do they respond? Verse 7 and 8. But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? Let me say that another way. Daddy... If my disobedience make you look good before my siblings, why are we not going to Toys R Us? And shouldn't I continue to sin, Daddy, so that you can look good? Pick up, back in the verse. And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. They press further. Well, why not just do evil that good may come? Why not sin so that good may come? The end justifies the means. 
And if the result of our sin is God's glory, then let's do as much evil as possible. There's so many people that take the gospel of Jesus Christ and twist it that way and use the cross for a license to sin. They say, hold on, Dex, let me get this right. God died for all of my sins, every last one of them, and I don't have to do anything to get right with God. You got that right. Oh, if that's the case, then I'll live how I want to live. If you see the gospel like that, you don't get the gospel. Because the gospel does not only send a Savior to die for your sins, but the gospel sends a Savior that transforms your heart. And if you are not producing the righteousness of God, you have no reason to believe that you are in Jesus at all. You can come to church You can read your Bible. You can be mechanical in your Christianity. You can lift up your hands. You can praise God. You can learn Christianese. And the bus drives past the church every week, and it is full. Hell is full of people who believe they are saved because they come to church. But there's no relationship. How many people know Jesus wants a relationship with us? God came because he wants a relationship with you. God didn't come so that he can give you a new uniform. God didn't come so he can give you a list of to-dos. God sent Jesus Christ so that God will become the center of your life. And when Jesus becomes the center of my life, when Jesus becomes the center of my love, when he becomes the center of my affections, when he becomes the center of my praise, I'm talking about that real faith. I'm talking about that faith that produces good works. I'm talking about that faith that gives up everything else. I'm talking about that faith that says though he slay me, yet shall I praise him. I'm talking about that faith that says you can take car, you can take wife, you can take job but at the end of the day as long as I got King Jesus, I'm going to be alright. I'm talking about that faith that says that I don't love my sin any longer. I'm talking about that faith that when that boyfriend walks out on you, you say, as long as I got King Jesus, I'm going to be all right. I'm talking about that faith that says there's not a dollar in the bank account, but I'm still rejoicing. I'm still praising. I'm still clapping. I got the bad news, but I came to tell you that I got the good news. I feel my help coming on me this morning. I feel like preaching the word because I don't know about you. But when Jesus gets down on the inside, when he gets down in our life, the person that I was yesterday is not the person that I used to be. I'm talking about that kind of faith, church, that says my identity is not in what I have, but it is in who who died for me. I'm talking about that kind of faith, church, that kind of faith that wakes you up in the middle of the night. I'm talking about that faith that comforts you through the storm and through the heartache. I'm talking about that faith that says, God, you are all that I want. I want anything else. 
And it is time that the church reclaim its prized possession. And oh, how I weep over churches that preach another gospel. They tell people, tithe, give, so that God can give you a BMW. To give you good clothes and your kids won't act up. You know the issue with that gospel is that it's too small. A BMW in comparison to Jesus is nothing. It's nothing in comparison. I'm trying to preach so you get it. Jesus is the most beautiful, most glorious, incomprehensible thing in the universe. You wake up in the morning and you look across creation and you see the sun and you see the stars. You should say, praise your name, praise your name, praise your name. You need the kind of faith that goes beyond outward religion. So what does all of this mean for us in the room? Well, let me ask you some questions this morning. What advantage is there in coming to church? Bible study. Having Bible studies. Well, there is much in every way, church. Are you reading the Word of God? Do you take your learning and apply it to your life? Or is your GPS off most of the time? Or is it on, but you still do what you want to do? Do not use the word of God to get your way, but use it to find the way. Are you trusting in God's faithfulness this morning? We live in a very unfaithful world. People make promises and fail to keep them. People say one thing and do another. All man unfaithfulness highlights the glory of God, absolute faithfulness. Israel bombed the Mosaic Covenant. They bombed the promises. And they re-promised after walking through the Jordan River. They promised and promised. But the Bible describes their faithfulness as equivalent of a wife who turns in a prostitute. Israel the harlot. But God is not like them. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is a God you can bank on to keep all of his promises. As that old song goes, great is thy faithfulness, O God my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Though changes not, thy compassion, thy fail not, as thou hast been, thou forever will be. Great is thy faithfulness, great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. All I have needed, thy hands have provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord unto me. Summer and winter, springtime and harvest, sun, moon, and stars in their courses above, joined with all nature and manifold wisdom to thou great faithfulness, mercy and love. 
love, pardon for sin, and peace that endureth. Thou thine own dear presence to cheer and guide. Strength for the day, bright hope for tomorrow. Blessing all mine with ten thousands beside you. Let's give God some praise in this place. 